Uh, turn your scriptures to Matthew uh, chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. All right, let's stand together. Would you please for a reading of God's word? Beginning with verse 9 of the ninth chapter of, of Matthew. Okay. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he said to him. Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher sit and eat with collectors and with sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came to him and asked, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus answered, How can the guest of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they'll fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. Lord, add his blessing to the reading of his scripture. Please be seated. Father, we want to, we want to uh, recognize your presence, your Holy Spirit in our midst. And thank you for the joy of Christ. Thank you for the body of Christ. Thankful for the oneness of heart and mind and spirit to show the world who you are. And we pray, Father, as we examine this scripture this morning, that it might speak to our hearts in a way that uh, strengthens our relationship with you and enhances our relationship with one another in the body of Christ. So we ask that you speak to us through this. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. My thesis, as I think about this this morning, was just this. The reason most people in churches, people who profess belief, don't live big lives is because they don't understand Christianity. Don't understand Christianity. This passage makes this basic point. Christianity is like nothing else. It's like nothing else. That's why he goes into this thing about the wineskins, that, you, you know, that something new has come, something different, something totally different than anything they've ever known before. Everyone who has really become a Christian has a sense of being awakened, right? You have a sense of being awakened to something you thought you understood life. You thought you understood about things. But now, 
now. Oh, my word. You know? Oh, my word. How, how radical. How otherworldly. How different this message is. And I've had people for years and years and years in my ministry, that awakening that happens, say, oh my goodness, I see it now, I understand it now. In Colossians, the first chapter in verse 6, Paul writes, all over the world this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it, and what does he say? And understood. And understood God's grace in all of its truth. All of its truth. So did you, did you see that? You hear that? You hear what he's saying there? Paul says the gospel began to bear fruit the day you understood. The day you understood. He didn't say the day you signed a card, the day you got baptized. Something happens in your heart and in your mind. Something happens. Something radical began to move in your heart and in your life. And Paul says until you get it, until you get it, there's not a greatness in your life. It's not like, well, I understand Christianity now, but now I just need to try harder. Need to, no, no, no that, that response means you don't understand. You don't understand. Now, before I continue, I want to define what I mean by greatness, because that's an important thing. What, is it, what do we mean by greatness in the Christian life? Uh, Fred Craddock, great uh, Southern Baptist pastor who taught at Candler School of Theology in Emory down at, uh, in Atlanta, he said this. He says, to give my life for Christ appears glorious. To pour myself out to others, to pay the ultimate price of martyrdom, I'll do it. I'm ready, Lord. I'm ready. I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory. And then he says this, and, I, and I'm quoting him here. We think giving our all to the Lord is like taking a $1,000 bill and laying it on the table. Here's my life, Lord. I'm giving it all. We have, and we think, well, to, to really be a, a strong, I need to be a pastor or I need to be a missionary. I need that, that, those guys, you know, those guys and gals, that's it. That's where I, I need to give, I need to do all this. But he says, in reality, for most of us, He sends us to the bank, and he has a $1,000 bill in our hand, and he asks us to cash it. And he cashes it, he says, for quarters, for quarters. And we go through life putting 25 cents here and 50 cents here, listening to the neighbor's kid's troubles instead of saying, get lost, you know, get lost. Go to a committee meeting and sit at a committee meeting trying to understand what we need to do at church. We serve where we're asked, giving a cup of cold water to a shaky old man in a nursing home, spending some time with him, usually giving our life to Christ. Isn't that glorious? We've done it in all those little acts of love, 25 cents at a time, ministering to people. It would be easy to go out in a flash of glory. It's harder to live the Christian life little by little over a long haul. Live the Christian life little by little. It's being faithful to God. Faithful in your life to God. When no one cares. No one's watching you. 
No one's paying attention. Spending 25 cents doing the right thing when no one knows you did it. Being faithful in the mundane, the everyday life things, the, the home things, the family things, the, the husband-wife relationship things. It's being faithful to God when it doesn't seem to matter to anyone else. It's doing the right thing in the small things. This is proof that we have encountered Christ. Because it's every day. It's an everyday thing. Proof there's a radical change in our life. In Matthew 13, I want to dig into this just a little bit this morning. Jesus' parable of the sower, he goes out and he sows the seeds. You know the parable. And uh, the, the seed falls on four different grounds, four different plots of ground. And only the last plot of ground is their permanent full growth. Jesus says, well, let me tell you what this represents, what this is all about. The seed is the word of God. It's the message of the gospel. And on the first plot, the seed is rejected. On the second and third plot, there's temporary growth. It's received. And then the fourth plot, he says, as for what was sown on good soul, this is the one that hears the word of God. And was it? Understands it. There it is again. Understands it. You know, you get it. All right. This whole passage, now listen to me, this whole passage has nothing to do with the, with, the, with the mundane things. This has to do with seeing and understanding. Seeing and understanding. It's not like you just need a little more elbow grease. He says, no, 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 you don't understand. You're not understanding the gospel. Look, look at Paul. Whenever he prays for Christians, he, he never prays for them to have power. Do you know that? He's not praying for them to power. You know, they just don't have enough strength to do it. That's not what he says. In Colossians 1.9, he prays that they might understand. Understand. Here's what he says. I pray for the knowledge of God's truth, that it will come to you in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that you'll understand it. In Ephesians 3, He's praying for the church at Ephesus. He says, I pray you will have power to grasp the height, the width, the length, the breadth, the depth of the love of Christ. You understand, he says. I hope you understand this. Hope you understand what he's saying. Now, aren't these Christians he's writing to? Yes, he's writing to the church. Don't they already? Don't they already understand the love of God in their lives? He says, well, yeah, yeah, they understand the love of God enough to be Christians, but not enough to be great Christians. They don't really understand, they don't really see the uniqueness, the amazing thing of being a Christian, of, of, of being united to Christ. It's not like anything else. It's not like any other religion. This passage tells us what a real Christian is. A real Christian is someone who's been called. You've been called. You've been summoned by God. A Christian is someone who has had the same experience as Matthew here in this passage. Look what it says there. As Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth, and he says, follow me. And he told him, Matthew got up and followed him. So you're not a Christian, it seems to me, and I'm going to, I'm going to extrapolate this a little bit, unless you have, like Matthew, experienced a call from God. 
You've experienced a call from God. Christianity is not something you take up. It takes you up. It takes you up. You have a sense of being worked upon. There's things that are happening to you in your life, things you don't really understand. The call of God is a summons, a summons away from one thing to another thing, to live a different way than you're living. Have you been summoned? There's my, my grade school. I'm old. They tore that down. I, I showed you this a couple of weeks when I was talking about something else. This is Emerson Elementary School uh, in, outside of Chicago. That's been torn down now. But in my elementary school, every classroom had a speaker above the door. You, you, had, you have these? You know? They have it here at the school. All of a sudden, I'm always hearing Kevin's voice. I don't want to hear Kevin's voice, but Kevin's voice comes across you know, when we hear it. Uh, but there's a speaker over the door, and it, it, every morning when we come into class, it would crack to life. The speaker, you hear, the speaker would, would turn on. And, but, you know, we're all kind of asleep, but when that speaker crackles, we hear it. We hear it. If the principal, the principal at that time was Dr. William Vasek. I called him Bill. <laughs> if he wanted you in his office... On that morning, your name was announced over that loudspeaker. Now, remember, this was back in the day when public humiliation ranked right alongside arithmetic as a well-rounded education. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they would get all over you with stuff. Tom Roberts, Tom Roberts. And each time that voice would boom out over that box that was on the wall, I wondered whether my time had come for the long walk to the principal. It was not a good feeling. And I, I had that long walk several times. And I think there were kids that were summoned to his office over the years that never returned. <laughs> and I thought about that, you know. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm serious, you know. Look at that building. You know, I, I, I had this thing that the, uh, under the corridor of the principal's office, there was this, you know, long hallway that went down into the basement where there was a dungeon and, uh, you know, and someday those summoned would reappear, a shell of their former selves, and uh, their lives forever changed. And as I grew older, as I grew older, I learned the summons could be a good thing. It could be a good thing. Like when the coach calls my name. Roberts, I want to put you in the game, see what you got. Come on, up we go, up we go. Or an inconvenient thing like the official letter announcing jury duty. Or it can alter your life. And back in those days, there was a selective service, the draft. And a letter would come, a summons would come, and your whole life changes, the draft notice. Regardless of the situation, it's a call away from one thing to another thing. It's a call away from one thing to another thing. Every one of you who names the name, every one of you who call him Lord of your life, You've received the call of God. You've received the call of God. 1 Corinthians 1.9 said, God is faithful by who you were what? Called. You were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In Romans 8.30, those he predestined, he also what? Called. Called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. 
2 Thessalonians 2, 13. God shows you to be saved through the sanctifying work of his spirit. He called you. He called you to this through the gospel that you might share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? See, that's the thing. What does that mean? First of all, be very careful not to assume that means God always works in the same way with people. You know? Uh, in Matthew 9.1, in the passage that we were looking at, uh, Jesus uh, is talking to Matthew. He goes into his office. Before that, he's on a boat. You know, he's going across the sea there, and he crosses over, and he comes to his own town, and it says, some men brought him a paralytic lying on a, on a mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, son, your sons are forgiven. You know? Now, on the surface, when you look at that, it looks like the way Jesus dealt with the paralytic was different than the way he dealt with Matthew in his office. It looks totally different, doesn't it? The paralytic had a bunch of friends that kind of just dragged him along in the streets, and they put him down, and they uh, took him to, uh, uh, to Jesus. But there were so many people, they had to go up on the roof. And in Jesus' name, they tore up this guy's roof. Think about that. And they lowered him down. Now here's somebody. Looks like he's doing everything to get to Jesus. Matthew's not doing that, is he? He's sitting in his office. He's just sitting in his office. The way Jesus meets Matthew seems to be totally different. Matthew's at work. Imagine yourself, you're at your desk, wherever that is. People are coming to you, and he says, well, they're paying their, their bills, they're so-and-so, and Mr. and Mrs. so-and-so, they gave me this amount, and he's crossing your names off of a ledger. And suddenly, somebody shows up and says, follow me. Follow me. Matthew's not looking for this. He's not praying about this. Not something he knew. This tells us that we have to be careful about standardizing the Christian experience of who we are. Because you came to Christ in a crisis. If someone else doesn't have a crisis, we wonder. We wonder. You came because you did a lot of study and you moved through some sort of intellectual experience. Another comes through an emotional experience and we wonder. We wonder. Some people feel like you have to, to walk forward in a service, in church. And yet there's something we have all in common. And here's what it is. Here's what it is. We all sense an outside power taking charge of our lives. We all sense an outside power taking charge. And you sense Jesus is in charge. There's an outside, here, 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 here's Jesus appearing. He calls Matthew right out of the middle of a work day. Now watch this. The paralytic thought Jesus was going to heal him, right? That's why he's going there. Want to, be, want to be healed. So he looks at Jesus, and what does Jesus say to him? Your sins are forgiven. I didn't ask for that. I didn't ask for that, you know? You see, Jesus is in charge. See it? Just with Matthew, Jesus is in charge. With a pale leg, Jesus is in charge of what's going to happen in that person's life. I didn't ask for that. But Jesus is in charge of things. The paralytic thinks he's in charge. And the paralytic thinks that he's the one who's asking Jesus. But actually, Paul says in Romans 3 that no one seeks God. No one seeks God. 
This man thinks he's found Jesus, but really Jesus found him. Jesus healed him. Jesus changed him. To be called is to experience this outside power, this heavenly power that's at work in your life. And if you don't have that sensation, if you don't sense somebody's after you, I mean really, you don't feel somebody's after you, if you don't sense a stirring in your heart, in your mind, if you don't sense that, there's some issues. There's some issues. Now look, be careful. Be careful. When God is after you, and he is, when God is after you, once you learn some of the Christian faith, it gets real hard to look back. I said several years ago, we were doing something on Wednesday night, and I was talking to the group, and uh, you know, I made a comment to them. He said, uh, you know, we're, we're struggling. If you, if you think you can walk away from Christ, go ahead. Go ahead, do it. Go ahead and do it. Once you taste the Christian faith, the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, it gets very hard to go back if you're a thoughtful person. If you're a thoughtful person. I remember talking to someone a couple years ago who really didn't want to be a Christian. He was, but he didn't want to be. <laughs> he was upset by things. He was upset by, by the things that it, it brought, the lifestyle issues that he had, you know, the ethics of Christianity. He didn't like some of this stuff, you know, and the guy is saying, I don't want to be a Christian. My friends tell me that why, why, why Christianity is wrong, and I listen to their answers, their what's and their why's and their whatnot, and, and, and I don't like their decisions. I realize the inconsistency of the things that they're, they're saying. I wished I had never read the scriptures. That's what he said. I wished I'd never read the scriptures. This is a person who's been called. Do you get that? This is the person who's been called. God's been working in his life. God's changed him. This is the person God's chased him down. There's another person, another person who says, I've always been a Christian. I've always been a Christian. Always come to church. I think religion is a private thing. Uh, and I don't think you should talk or get too excited about it. What? Come on. What? I've been in church all my life. I'm still excited about it. I'm still excited. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what God's going to do. But I'm excited about it. I'm excited about the future. What? What? I don't care how many Sunday school perfect attendance pens you have hanging on your little lapel. That's not right. There's something wrong there. First, an outside power enters your life. And then second thing that I want to say this morning about this passage of Scripture is you're confronted with a person. Not a lot of intellectual idea. You're confronted with a person. Jesus says what? Follow me. Not this. Not that. Not don't know this. Don't, no. Follow me. He doesn't say follow these things or this whatever. He says follow me. The real Jesus is always talking about himself. Have you noticed that? You know? Always, always, always saying, what do you think of me? <laughs> anyway, that's different. Always saying, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? Who do you say that I am? 
Who do you say that I am? Now, I'm going I'm I'm to jump on this in just a bit, so watch it. When he appears on the road to Damascus, he's got, you know, Paul's there. Paul's been, Saul at that time, was persecuting, killing Christians. What does Jesus say? He cries from heaven, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me. There is a radical self-centeredness of Christ, Jesus. John Piper is always talking about this in his books. Look at things, he says. Before Abraham was, I am. I am. I and the Father were one. You need to love your mother and your father, but your love for your mother and father should look like hate next to loving me. He says, if I tell you, now listen, if I tell you to cut off your hand, if I tell you to pluck out your eye, do it. What? Crazy talk. Crazy talk. In other words, if I tell you to cut off your hand, you should say, how far up? And that's all. That's all. Look at what he says about himself in Scripture. He is so radically self-centered in what he does. One of the ways you know you're being called is that you're, you're confronted with the radical self-centeredness of Jesus Christ. Let me be as frank as I can this morning as to the Christian community. When people are investigating Christianity, they say, well, I'm, I'm interested in Christianity. I'm interested in Christianity. What is the Christian view of this? What is the Christian view of this? What is the Christian view of this? What's the Christian view of that? How do Christians think? What is the Christian view of marriage? What's the Christian view of gender, of women? You know, I, I want to know what they're saying. You know, I don't want to be too narrow. I, you know, I don't want to be too narrow. I want to live my life. Can Christians do this? Can Christians do that? Can Christians believe that? When you ask those questions, you're on the wrong sense. Because the Bible says, the Holy Spirit says, first, 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 first. You have to decide who he is. Who he is before anything else. Let me be logical about this. I'm going to be logical this morning. Over the years, I've had a number of people say to me, what's the Christian view of homosexuality? With all due respect, who cares? Who cares? First, Jesus. Who is he? Who did he say he is? And if he is, whatever he says, he is the authority. See? It's always Christ. And then secondly, when we look at this, you can figure out what, the, what he teaches uh, by, by these issues, you know. If he's king of the universe, is that what we say? Yeah. Majesty, we sang it. He's king of the universe. It's ridiculous to say. If he's king of the universe, if he's Lord, if he's life itself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am life itself. If he's king of the universe, it's ridiculous to say, I want to know whether I like all these other things. 
all these other views. This is the question. Is Jesus Christ the Son of God? You know, he asked that. Who do men say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the... Who, who is Christ? Is he creator? Is he the judge of the whole world? Once you settle the situation of authority, then you can ask these other questions. Let me put it to you another way. I've had people say, you know, I'd like to be a Christian, but for this and because of that. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? If Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he says, I want Christians to cut off their right foot and hobble around the rest of their lives. The only rational response, if he's the Son of God, is you say, sure, of course. You see what I'm saying? Follow me. Follow me. Could you say, no, I, I want both feet. I want both feet. Therefore, even though Jesus is who he says he is, son of God, judge of all the earth, save you, die for me, I, can't I want both my feet. I want both my feet. See, Jesus poses those questions. He told them that. If I tell you to pluck out your eye, do it. Why is he saying those things? It's crazy talk. But it's even crazier if he is who he says he is, if he tells you to do something, that you don't do it. What's the matter with us? We're not thinking. It's not a lack of faith. It's a lack of sense. It's a lack of sense. If Jesus says, I want you to cut off both your feet and hobble around on crutches the rest of your life, you say, sure, that's nothing. That's nothing. So the next 10, 50 years... I have to do that. That's nothing if I'm going to rule with you forever. That's nothing if I'm going to reign with you forever. Right? Am I right? Does that make sense? The real, or the only response, again, is how high up? Where do you want me to cut? If he's not who he says he is, then of course none of this makes any sense. With all due respect, who cares what Jesus teaches about marriage? Who cares what he teaches about sexuality? First, you have to figure him out. Is he him? Is he who he says he is? And that informs you about everything else and the authority of the word of God. The authority of the word of God. In other words, Jesus is saying, I won't deal with you about anything else until you decide who I am. You have to deal with me first. It's about me. You decide who's the authority in your life. Is it me or everything out there? Everything out there. That's the call. That's the call. And anyone who's had the call of God has to figure that, you know, that that's where it has to be. When I see people who just love to talk theological issues, love to argue about all that stuff, no offense, but all these things are very interesting and important, but they're never the first thing. The first thing is, follow me. Follow me. You have to come to grips with that. You don't say, well, well, I, I'll come to Jesus if, if I like his agenda. I'll, I'll come to him if I like what you guys are saying, you know, Christians, you know. 
If he's the son of the living God, then, <laughs> then I have to get with his agenda. You know what I'm saying? That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Follow me. Have you heard the call? Have you heard the call? It's coming to grips with who the Lord is in my life, who the Savior of my life is. Is it me or him? Is it me or him? And the third way you know you're called is you get up and you follow him. You just get up and follow him. That's what Matthew does. He just gets up and follows him. It's hard to know why, why Matthew got up, but he did. I mean, just out of the blue, God, follow me. And he gets up, you know. You know, Jesus had a call. Jesus had a call. It's in Hebrews 10 in your scriptures. We're told that Jesus answered the Father's call. He answered God the Father's call. He says, lo, it is written of me in the book, a body thou hast prepared for me. I come to do thy will. I delight to do it. A body you've prepared for me. It's a quote from Psalms 40 in which it says, God called him and he said, and he says, here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. What will it cost you to answer the call? Nothing like what it cost him. Nothing like what it cost Jesus to answer the call of the Father. There's, and I love this. If you, don't, if you haven't watched it, you ought to watch it uh, because it's, there's so much theological uh, drama in all this. But the, the, the Lord of the Rings, you know, I just, I just one of my favorite uh, uh, movies, Lord of the Rings. There's a hobbit, and his name is Meridoc. And there he is there. You guys recognize him if you've seen that. He's a little old guy. All the hobbits are little, little guys. But he's in this great battle. And his beloved king and his friend was, was, had just been cast down. And there was this towering evil force. A, a kind of demonic king. And Merodach is supposed to defend his friend. He's supposed to defend the king who's now lying on the ground and he's dying. He's absolutely terrified. He's crawling around on the ground. And he, and he couldn't get up the courage to stand up and defend. The, the evil, the demonic king starts to come at the good king, and suddenly a woman stands up in full armor, throws off her helmet. Her name is Elowen. And she stands before this nameless terror, her beloved father, actually. And she says, touch him, and I'll smite thee. And of course, the evil king looks at her and says, if you don't get out of my way, I will not only kill you, but you will die in terrible torment. And what does she say? She draws her sword. She, okay, do what you will, but if you touch him, I'll smite you. I'll smite you. So the demonic king, if you know the scene, starts to crush her he, to the ground. He comes upon her. And, and Merodach the hobbit, who's on the ground there, and he's looking around, he says, if she is willing to stand there like that, I can do a little thing. And he jumps up, and he attacks this towering inferno of evil. And together, Elowen and Merodach slay the horrible evil general. Now, what does that mean? It's a theological statement that's being made by the author. I'll tell you what it means. Jesus stands between us and destruction. Jesus stands between us and death. And the power of death. 
And that's what we deserve. We deserve death. All of sins, right? Come short. Death and destruction, that nameless terror. You know, I've got a funeral this afternoon. Death is, death is all around us. All my life I've been dealing with death. I don't know how many funerals I've done. But it's after us. It's after us. Death is after us. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. These are my brothers and sisters. This is my family. I will stand here between. I will stand here. And the Bible says, the punishment that was supposed to come to us went to him. It went to him. Even as Christians, we are as cowardly as a blinded, in our daily lives, we, we just back away from things. We're afraid of things. We don't want to, we don't want to, we're just, but when we see what he's done for us, when we see what he's done for us, then your courage starts to jump up within you and you say, no, if he's willing to do this, if he's willing to do this, I can do my part. You become great. And I don't care if it's 25 cents worth. I don't care if it's 50 cents worth. I don't care if it's $1,000 worth. You become a great person in the faith. You're following the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me, let, Jesus says, cut off your hand. Jesus says, pluck out your eye if I ask you. Listen to me. Jesus was cut to the roots. He, he allowed himself to be cut off from the living, the scripture says slain. He was cut off from his father. Do you see what I just told you? You see what I just told you? Does that affect you? If he says, pluck out your eye, look what he did. Look what he did. Look at the suffering. Then you'll rise up and follow him. You'll rise up and follow him. He lost his life for you. Therefore, you lose your life for him. Are you called? Are you called? Answer the call. Answer the call. It's irrational not to. Answer the call. Let's pray. Father God, we're, we're, we're in awe of this, 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 this gospel, this, this gospel, the coming of Christ, the life that he lived, the death that he suffered, the glory of the resurrection, and the life yet to be, we're in awe of this Christ of Jesus and what he's done for us and the great love that he had. Father, we pray that that call of God is that which speaks to all of us. And, it, and, and Lord, help us, help us to be in awe of this. This is just not another Sunday. This is not another day. This is, this, every day is an amazing day with Jesus. 
And we all come from different places. We all come from different hurts. We all come from different activities that are going on in our lives. And we're all struggling with different things, whether it be financial, whether it be health, whether it be emotional, whether it be relational, whether it be uh, in, in the things that are, are happening throughout the world, things that impact us. But we are overcomers because of what Jesus Christ has done. And he's called us to live great lives. He's called us to live faithful lives and to be faithful day after day after day to the calling of God. And we do have the strength through him. We do have the strength through him to be what you've called us to be and to live that before a world that needs to know Jesus desperately. And whatever he calls us to do, our response is, okay, I'll do it now, Lord. So Father, help us to think on these things and, and, and to, to, to let, them, let them sink into our hearts and our minds, the, 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 the extravagance of what Jesus has done for us and the extravagance of what we can do for him. We ask and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.